0: I always had this perspective in which if you are a financial asset to your family, they're most likely going to keep you close to the family. They're not going to give you away. I also knew this because of my interviews to 11 Marines in Camp Lejeune, in which they confirmed the fact that young women were usually given away for marriage, you know, for dowry reasons and so on. And this society was really based not just on a conservative perspective, from a religious perspective. But also on the monetary needs of the families. So, you know, men who can work in the fields have a different value than girls that unfortunately cannot provide the same opportunities.
1: This
2: episode is sponsored by Nexo.io and Quantstamp.
3: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human
0: culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, CoinDesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey.
3: Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. There's nothing more tiresome than authors using their media and or speaking engagements to shill their books. But for this opening monologue, I'm compelled to make an opening mention of The Age of Cryptocurrency, the book Paul Vinear and I published in 2015. Many people have told me that the story we related in the early lines of that book is what piqued their interest in it, and more broadly, in Bitcoin. It was a tale brought to me by this week's guest, Francesco Rulli, the CEO of conversational AI company Querlo, and the founder of a new thing called Patronage NFT. When I met him in 2014, Francesco was sending money in Bitcoin to young women in Afghanistan who were studying computing and producing videos for the Women's Annex, a project that he and Afghan entrepreneur Roya Mahbub had founded. In explaining it to me, Francesco opened my eyes to Bitcoin's capacity to empower people by bypassing intermediaries. He explained how in Afghanistan, it was rare for women to have bank accounts of their own and that their access to funds sent through the banking system was almost always intermediated by a male family member, such as a father or a brother. His Bitcoin solution upended that. It challenged patriarchal power. That was a very big idea. When we bring Francesco on, we can talk a bit about what happened to that project and his thoughts on the current situation in Afghanistan. But I need to tell you that we've had to pivot today because until a few hours ago, he was going to be joined by Roya the entrepreneur with whom he worked back then and who is in her own right, a significant figure in the advancement of Afghan women. You might've heard the story of the Afghan girls robotics team's spectacular success and the challenges they faced when Kabul fell back into the hands of the Taliban last year. That's all part of Roya's amazing story. Unfortunately, we've just learned that she has had a skiing accident and cannot make it. So beyond the most important point of wishing Roya the best in her convalescence, We had to quickly decide to shift focus today. We'll wait until Roya is fit enough to join us again for a deeper dive into Afghanistan and the role crypto can play in addressing the challenges women face there now that the Taliban are back in power. And Instead, we're going to turn this into a special OG edition of Money Reimagined because Francesco's eight-year journey from being an early Bitcoin visionary to his interests now in NFT's culture and education is in itself a fascinating one. Before we bring him on, let's do as we always do and say hello to Sheila, my co-host. Hello, Sheila.
2: Hey, Michael.
3: So, I don't know. It tires me saying this every week, but I got to say it again. It's like, it feels like this is yet another one that's reminded me that crypto time moves faster than other time. I mean, this incredible story of the three point six billion dollars worth of Bitcoin that this New York <laughs> Raza Dal or whatever is, yep. the rapping woman with her role in this. And then the price of Bitcoin suddenly like, Oh, what was all that with? We last week we were in the doldrums of a crypto winter and now apparently we're not anymore. So
2: yeah, the- there's Kronos time, Kairos time and crypto time, right? Like that's, it's a brand new animal. I can't even get my head around it. You know, I was joking with a friend of ours that there's no way anyone can keep up with everything going on. And the cast of characters, there's just ever new characters that join. I mean, we didn't know about these two until right. this rapper and the other, right, until this week. Uh, but there's just this ever, ever entertaining, I think, cast of characters that are that are coming through. Uh, which is not to say that, you know, the media is focusing on what I think are the right things, necessarily. There are a lot of other things that happen in this space that I think were equally exciting this week. They just don't get the kind of press that, you know, the sort of comedy of this video or these meme generating moments kind of obtains. But yeah, two Not big heard. hearings in the Congress on the topics here and move some things forward there, which I think is really powerful.
0: Good. You're
3: already and getting to breakfasty.
2: Exactly, exactly. So just, just as usual, just a, a tremendous amount going on. But I, I'm very eager to bring in our guests and to kind of link this to you know, the history of what's come this past for a decade.
3: I think Francesco will be a look at these arriving casts of characters. It was a very different set of participants back in the days when we first met. So let's bring him in. Hello, Francesco. Hello. Thank you for having me today. You're most welcome, my friend. Right. So people should gather. He and I go way back. Francesco was a formative figure in my uh, discovery of Bitcoin. And the stories that he told me about that project were just amazing. This is now morphed into, as I said in the monologue, an OG edition on that basis. What I'd like you to do, Francesco, is just tell us a little bit about your journey into this space, like what brought you here into into crypto,
0: obviously what the origins of the Women's Annex were, and then we can get into talking a little bit about that. Okay, so my journey in technology started back in 2004 after an interesting conversation with my former business partner, John Malkovich, the actor, when we had a fashion company together where in Milan... And he inspired me to start FilmOnex, an online film distribution platform, who basically does what YouTube or Netflix do today. At that time, actually back in 2004, YouTube didn't even exist. So we launched this platform in 2005, very successfully, reaching over 40 million uniques per month in a matter of a year and a half, two years. It was back in 2010-11 that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, contact us to distribute their content about their peacekeeping efforts. At first, I thought it was a spam, and in reality, it was uh, this a lady called Zornitska, who was based out in Brussels and offered us over 2,000 videos. So one day, I noticed this video about a businesswoman in Herat, and there was a video about Roya Mahbub's uh, office. Along with her, there was her sister, Elaha Mahbub, and Fereshteh uh, Furog which then they will become three important representatives for their country based on what they did in the years to come. So I approached Roya, took me like a month and a half, to figure out how to get in touch with her. And then we started building classrooms in schools in Afghanistan. We, we started, obviously, with high schools because we wanted to get the younger students, the female students, early enough so that uh, they would actually build a financial skill that would actually allow them to be financially self-efficient and not be given away for marriage at the age of 13 years old, basically. I always had this perspective in which if you are a financial asset to your family, they're most likely going to keep you close to the family. They're not going to give you away. I also knew this because of my interviews at the year before to 11 Marines in Camp Lejeune, uh, North Carolina. In which they confirmed the fact that young women were usually given away for marriage, you know, for dowry reasons and so on. And uh, this society was really based not just on a conservative perspective from a religious perspective, but also on the monetary needs of the families. So, you know, men who can work in the fields have a different value than girls that unfortunately cannot provide the same opportunities. So we introduced the concept of digital literacy and financial literacy through the programs we carried on. It was back in 2012, I was watching the Olympics and I saw some coverage of uh, timing and contact one of the timing journalists, Erin Baker. Coincidentally, she was married to an Afghan man and she was spending her vacations in Italy and uh, she was fascinated by what we were doing. So it was a few months later, we received the notification that Roya was uh, going to be included in the time 100, 2013. And that was March, 2013, and the Roya came to New York to be part of the big event that they usually carry on. That time was in Columbus Circle. That was Raya at the time that she spent a couple of weeks and we went to meet various interesting people. And one of them was Fred Wilson, the venture capitalist. And I explained to Fred I had the problem. I wanted to introduce the concept of micro-scholarships for Young women in Afghanistan, you know, they don't have a bank account. And even if they did, to be frank, the cost of transferring money to a bank account, when we talk about small amounts, would be prohibitive. So that's how we decided to find the solutions. PayPal was not available. And Fred Wilson said, look into this Bitcoin thing. So it was just a couple of months later, we started implementing Bitcoin payments, and that's how we started in 2013 paying uh, students uh, for their achievements in uh, micro payments or, let's say, scholarship in Bitcoin. And that's how the whole thing started.
1: Nexo is a trusted and easy to use crypto platform where you can buy cryptocurrencies at the touch of a button and start earning up to 18% annual interest that is paid out daily. They support all of the major assets on the market and even allow you to swap one asset for another or borrow cash against your crypto without selling it. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. So, whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most of your crypto today with Nexo at nexo.io. Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for Quantstamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company, Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers.
3: Just explain a little bit about the mechanics of it. So they had their own Bitcoin addresses, you were sending money to them. But then you were also, did you not like that you created a marketplace for them so they could purchase
0: things? Yeah, so the concept of showing the names and the locations of the beneficiaries was not a good idea. Malala was a proof of that, right? And to be mm. frank with you, a little controversially, I always felt that BBC or whatever platforms were publishing her blogs should have rewarded her financially. You know, that's my personal perspective. Making a person a target because he or she's voicing certain opinions is not a good idea. So mm-hmm. Bitcoin or other forms of cryptocurrency that came later on, they were the ideal solution because they maintain a complete anonymity. So what we did, we switched from film annex into Bitlanders and then eventually women's annex as a platform where people could acquire their own nickname and be represented by avatars. You know, in line with what's happening now in the NFT world with uh, Bored Apes, uh, Yacht Club, and so on. But at that time, we didn't introduce the concept of NFTs. We looked at those uh, avatars as a, a way to maintain anonymity and allow the students and other participants at that point, and based on their quality and the reach of the content, we would reward them, and also the achievements in the classrooms, we would reward them with Bitcoin. This was the thing. Then uh, I can talk about the big License. Oh, yeah. That was that, that <laughs> So, yeah, this is all
3: moving along, and you suddenly had to stop.
0: Yeah. So what happened, for whatever reasons, New York State announced the big License, in which it was put in as, as New York State residents and company based here, in a very awkward position, because uh, the requirements of KYC or debit license didn't really allow us to proceed forward. And that was then, and that was my first instinct was like, uh, this is going to impact negatively, not so much my finances, because I'm doing okay. It's going to impact negatively the future of these young women in Afghanistan who cannot count on this. And I never thought that the Talibans would come back into power so fast. But a few years later, unfortunately, I was proven correct that uh, uh, this would have happened. Now, I understand that the concept of security. Imagine if I send Bitcoin to the daughter or a son of um, a terrorist, okay? So there is a risk of doing that if you don't do your KYC. On the other hand, you have tens of thousands of young women and men that they are unable to have access to financial independence because uh, obviously they probably... You know, they lost the opportunity to work with us back in 2015, 16 is when this big change happened. And I hope some of them kept their wallets, but I don't know how many other platforms were providing the type of financial opportunity and also digital literacy opportunity.
2: You know, it's really powerful. I mean, I think there is part of the the KYC AML rules are designed to prevent funding to go to antisocial activities like terrorism. But the consequence is that they sweep up an awful lot of people who aren't engaged in such activity, who aren't able to have access to some of these potentially life-changing opportunities. It's really powerful to just kind of contemplate what it might have been like now in Afghanistan. If this project had continued, you'd have these women coming through Royal School, you know, they're earning Bitcoin, maybe they're producing NFTs, they're financially independent and what that might have meant for Afghanistan, the country, right, as the Taliban moved back in or began to amass power and make the moves that it made. It's really interesting to think about. My undergraduate thesis was actually, uh, it was called Gender Bias in the Allocation of Healthcare to Infants in India. And it was similarly studying the dynamics uh, among girl and boy children in uh, states in India that at that time were having high rates of female infanticide and kind of reflecting on how it's not just resources and money, it's also even basic healthcare that fuels this myth, frankly, that, that girls are weaker than boys or of less value financially to the family because they don't have the ability to kind of go work in the field or whatever's needed. That attitude persists in many parts of the world. And it's something that I do think all of us, we see potential in Bitcoin and in cryptocurrencies to help address that imbalance or that inaccuracy in the perception. But I'm curious for just going to ask you, how do you see this now? You clearly had a, an idealistic, I would say, view of the technology back then at the, at the time. How do you feel about kind of the state of play today? You've got a lot of people who are really in crypto focused on speculation, focused on hopefully making a quick buck or flipping an NFT quickly. What's your take on all that and how do you feel about
0: it? This is a little controversial. I do believe that philanthropy is empowered by a financial um, stability and strength of People like, uh, obviously, the Gates Foundation is an example, right? So the most powerful and wealthy people in the world that can gather together and they can create something very impactful. But on the other hand, I think that the philosophy of cryptocurrency, the decentralization concept, wasn't meant to be a speculation opportunity. And it saddened me when I see that there is an alignment between what happens in the markets and what happens on the crypto space Simply for speculation purpose, right? I do believe that the crypto was created for them banks. I think that book of the age of cryptocurrency covers that very well. Also, the personal experience of Michael living in Argentina and so on. So, you know, at the end of the day, we got to look at this opportunity for everybody. It's very sad for me when I talk about it and people ask me, when do you get into this space? I say, 2013, oh, you have to be so rich. And it saddened me, all right, maybe I'm not doing so well, or too badly. But on the other side, don't you see there is something beyond that? You know, there is a purpose for me for being on the blockchain and empower people. We are starting now a collaboration with a very interesting organization. We are in New York City, for example, that handles almost 100 schools, 10,000 students in the low-income neighborhoods to empower these kids to create a financial opportunity and also a communication opportunity in within their own benefits, right? Because when you post a video on YouTube or a picture on Instagram, I don't know if, you, if the financial benefits trickle down to the person who did that as much as if they had some control issuing their own NFTs and having their own access to their own Metamask wallets and so on. So I think this uh, digital and financial literacy is going to be very, very important. And slowly, I think, it's going to balance between speculation and actually the social good that cryptocurrency can do, and which I'm a big fan of. You know, Francesco, you mentioned philanthropy and that part there, and I know that you've got this new project, Patronage
3: NFT. Walk us through how you've gotten there, because you've been working in addition to you, your, you know, you work on these conversational AI, these AI chatbots instead of your mainstream work. But sure. you're the chief, chief digital officer, let's say it, mm-hmm. of L'Opera del Duomo, right? The entity that runs the museum of the Cathedral of Florence, and you've been thinking at least. I think that probably, if I'm right, that's inspired you to think about how funding, the patronage, could work with crypto and and NFTs and things. Can
0: you talk a little bit about where your ideas are at? Okay. So let's actually uh, go back to 2015. We had some problems with the, the Bitcoin distribution and also with the Afghan government at one point, and that's when we decided to transform our entire digital education into the use of artificial intelligence. Instead of just having uh, teachers in the classrooms, we implemented chatbots to educate young students in Farsi, okay? I learned incredibly a lot from Roya Mahbub, her sister, Elaha, and Farish Taforog. And I realized that if you can succeed in a s- such a difficult environments, you can actually be very successful in less difficult environments. So that was back in 2015 that I launched uh, Querlo, the artificial intelligence company. And which was launched for social responsibility purposes, education. But then we started servicing companies like IBM, Pfizer, HSBC, and so on. So you fast forward a couple of years, it's about two and a half years ago, I met a couple of people at the Duomo in Florence. I was visiting my family there. And I proposed them the introduction of artificial intelligence and to bring back to life some of the artists. And one of the artists was Michelangelo. So the first thing we did is the resurrection of Michelangelo. We started building a chatbot. We gathered a team of experts and scholars, and we built the first 100 intents. So that's when I got the title of Chief Digital Incarnative Officer for the Duomo Florence. You know, this institution with 725 years of history has an incredible wealth of knowledge that will be implemented, is being implemented, has been implemented in the Artificial Intelligence and we have been able to answer over 40,000 questions as of today, growing from 100 intents to 500 intents. Same thing we're doing with the David. It is not just now the artist. Now it's the subject of the artist or the biblical character. We're launching now uh, Leonardo da Vinci, working on Christopher Columbus. So different people, part of history, also controversial people. So that's how we got into this space. Then COVID hit. And obviously COVID hit and the NFT space hit. And I had a little bit of an epiphany saying, well, if institutions like the Duomo, that they cannot sell tickets anymore, they are going through a financial crisis. And this new world is opening up. Why not to welcome them into this space? So what you see behind me here is what we call the universe of Michelangelo. So in the middle here, we have a symbolic Michelangelo is Nicodemus, but is actually his self portrayed. In which is what he carved just before his death as uh, the statue of the Pietà that we have in uh, Florence. And all the other people that you see around are the patrons of the arts that supported Michelangelo back in the day in which he was working to achieve what he achieved. So for me now, the blockchain is also an opportunity to issue non-fungible tokens for patronage purpose. So we go back to the purpose before you should let say, the token or the NFT, whatever it is, and then build the new layers around of those new patterns of the arts or education, or even medical research, because the same concept applies, so that you can actually measure your impact. Visually, you can see how far you are from the center of those universe. In the middle of this could be, for example, I don't know, the Stanford University, Uh, Department of Clinical Anatomy. So if I want to contribute to that organization, why not give support, but also see what is the universe of that space, right? That's what we have been working on is uh, to help institutions, museums, and also educational institutions to gain the space of NFTs for a patronage purpose. So we are not selling an NFT for the purpose of speculation in which it can happen. So you can buy an NFT for 10 and sell it for 20. That's great. But the purpose of the ten is to support a specific venture, and then a percentage of the secondary market, so that uh, that patronage continues forever and supports the organization—an annuity or a form of endowment, let's say. So that's where we are today.
2: This is really interesting, right? Because when we think about NFTs, there's always this equation with kind of luxury goods and this idea that you have—you know, your status or your bragging rights or some ability to kind of say, uh, "I have this thing." And- Whatever it might be, and you know, and the implication being, and you're not. And here you're kind of taking that, and you're making it a bit more um, pro-social, I would say, because you're saying it's really about modeling and demonstrating your support for a cultural institution or whatever it might be. So, how do you see that extending into outside of a classically understood institution, like again, like the Duomo or like similar kinds of institutions, into almost brand focus or celebrities or things like that? Do you think that there is an element of conversion from this kind of status, symbol, luxury goods sort of model into something more like support or you know, this kind of thing? That you, Do you see that being something that is across a variety of different cultural spheres? Or do you see this something that's going to kind of be dependent upon the relationship historically that a patron had with the institution, right? Is, is that question clear? I see these as kind of oppositional in a way, even though they're basically facilitated by the same thing, the same NFT concept. I'm curious to get your thoughts
0: on that. Well, I believe that younger generations care a lot about social matters, right? So there is an understanding that uh, the failure of Afghanistan, for example, has, will impact everybody's life, right? So if you are successful in your personal life from a financial perspective, or you're successful in your gaming life, or you're successful in your metaverse life. And you display on a screen just like the one behind me, your beautiful NFT because you were able to acquire that half a million dollar avatar of something that proves your your status. I think we can add a layer of patronage to this so that we give a purpose to the money or to the tokens or the points that are associated to that transaction, okay? So I don't think uh, humans are born uh, to count money in the bank. They're born uh, to have a a cause to pursue, right? Maybe it's uh, your personal education, the education of your children uh, to bring peace to your country or flourish business in your region. I think that comes before. I don't don't think that uh, someone is a little baby and say, I want to be a rich guy. I mean, some people say that, but mature brains, they look at the purpose, right? What's your purpose every day? If it's simply making money, then why not selling drugs, right? So the the bottom line is there is a purpose, and I think that the blockchain cryptocurrencies have a fantastic purpose. They, it's the intrinsic opportunity to bank the unbanked, and which is the number one priority for everybody who is in the banked side, right? So you're in a place where your banks give you a fantastic service. You got to make sure that this opportunity is spread into those countries and regions where it's not. So we, we had Kevin Roos, the New York Times columnist uh, on our podcast a couple
3: of weeks ago, Francesco. And we talked about NFTs and what they mean to people. And he was talking about like, just it's this showing off thing, right? It's partly that is all it is. But we talked a little bit about how that's actually a huge part of the economy generally. That really so much of what our expenditure is on things that whether we like it or not, we can sort of try to argue that we're very utilitarian. I only wear shirts for shirts purposes. This is all practical. But no, we think about the way we look therefore we think about how, what we're signaling, right? And I think this is where this NFT concept is inherently there. Like, I am the owner of the authenticated first version, so I don't control the actual media, but I at least can say to you, I can brag to you, I'm it. So this signaling aspect of it, right? And that's always been a part of philanthropy, whether we like it or not, right? I mean, there are a few people who donate anonymously, but an enormous part of the philanthropic uh, industry is so that the Koch brothers, for example, can put their name on the, the New York Met or, you know, the Sackles. I'm naming all the evil ones here, but there's, there's a lot of good people as well who do put their names on the projects because it's it's part of their ability to claim that they, you know, it, it, it's it's signaling, it's who they are. And this is what I think is really interesting about this idea of yours, is patronage NFT concept, because when you go back to the image behind you, you've got this provenance that these museums have. I mean, I know, because you've told me about this, that the Cathedral of Florence, it, its patronage goes right back to the Medici. And the Medici are you know, critical figures, not only in the beginnings of the Renaissance, but the beginnings of banking, and therefore, in some respects, in the beginnings of blockchain, because it is precisely the act of sort of trying to disintermediate the system that the Medici created that makes this thing uh, so powerful. So the idea that we could tie a contemporary NFT now with its immutable uh, stake in a blockchain to this other pre-blockchain history, and now it contains within it my place in that universe, as you're describing in that picture there, and I can make that claim, that seems like a pretty big thing to be bragging about. And I might not have the statue of David sitting here in my hotel room, as you can now see I'm in. but I can have that claim that I have made this possible and that I am in this long line of significant figures. I think that's a pretty valuable idea. Like, and I, I'd like just, just yeah. to just break this down again. Maybe Sheila, you can weigh in because... This yeah.
2: concept in child psychology for young children around two or three who are starting to kind of come into their own as an identity, have an identity to themselves, because up until about that age, you see yourself as an extension primarily of your mother. So you just, you don't understand and perceive the difference between you and your mother. At that age, you start to develop identity. And so what they say is when you're, you know, you're praising your child for helping you by carrying something or whatever, you don't say, thank you for helping. You say, you're such a great helper. And that subtle shift in giving them the name for what they are and giving them the pride of like, oh, I'm a helper. Like in my house, we talk about, you're a reader now, right? Like I'm a reader, right? Like I'm a cyclist, hilariously, right? Whatever it is, we try to almost noun the verb to kind of say, this can now be part of your identity. You can, you can take that or leave it. And I think this shift is so powerful towards saying, you know, I own the art by so and so, but, or to I am a patron of the artist, so and so. It sounds subtle, but it's really quite profound because I do think that what we're talking about here is how do we support culture in a way that makes us all feel like we are part, we truly are, are part of contributing to this ongoing cultural identity that we have as human beings in a society. And that is more than just the sort of more selfish orientation towards ownership or exclusivity, uh, but I have it, you don't have it. It's more, I am part of a community helping to sustain this thing that is beautiful or that is important or that is whatever. And you can see this applying to things beyond the arts into nature and conservation, right? I mean, Michael, we've got friends who are engaging in conservation NFTs and that was an early kind of case to say, not just how do we fundraise around this, how do we get people to really feel invested and think of themselves as naturalists or as conservators, right? or people who are playing an active role in shaping the ecosystem that, that we live in. So all of this is fascinating. And I, I hadn't, I confess, thought about the lineage of this, all the way back to the Medici or wherever, whatever, it might be, and depending on the jurisdiction that you're in or the country that you're in. But there is something to, to, to be said about being able to self-identify, you know, in this lineage and this legacy of powerful supporters uh, of the arts or whatever it might be. Maybe it's, you know, John Muir if you're a naturalist or whatever it might be that I think could really provide, I don't know, a boost to some of the things that I hope as a society we're going to continue to prioritize or maybe start to prioritize, depending on where you are, uh, as we move into a world that is more technically intermediated. you know We've got more digital screens, you know, screens between us and, and others. And frankly, where we have less and less land available you know because of climate change and other things that, that make it scarcer and scarcer and more and more need of protection.
0: My personal opinion is that the NFT itself can be a medium of education that is very powerful. That one image or one short GIF or video can educate people about both the philanthropy and the patronage of the owner, but also about the positive impact. So I would love to see more artists and more institutions issuing NFTs with a purpose. So that the purpose, the intrinsic purpose is education, and that's a little bit what the arts were at the one point. I mean, the Renaissance was all based about uh, creating this uh, metaverse of cathedrals and squares. And it was even going back to the Greek times and the Egyptians in which basically the human is basically an avatar. Because if you look from that perspective, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's an opportunity to grow your space around you. Now we have technologies that are interact, So I think that NFTs have a big responsibility carry on a human civilization in a positive route and uh, keep everybody included, because that's another aspect. There is a lot of other regions in the world where nobody will be able to ever go into a museum. Nobody will be able to even go to a university or travel to New York. So it's our responsibility to take those digital assets, make them available, and provide them inspiration and also financial security. That's the great work that uh, Roya, Elaha, and Fereshteh have carried on in Afghanistan. And there is a little bit of an underground movement uh, to keep those guys back in business in in the region, you know, where it's so difficult. So I'm positive about the future. Yeah, well, looking forward to talking to Roya when we do get around to talk about what that underground mission is all about. But like you,
3: you're alluding there, I think Francesco to the metaverse. So this digital world, this digital way to experience art and culture and history is that the future for museums or a future for museums? One would hope that we would still have the physical experience of going into the Florence Cathedral. But is there a realm now where the world can be invited to the metaverse version of
0: Italy? Well, let's look at what Ubisoft has done, which is incredible. With Assassin's Creed, for years, I told my kids, oh, don't play violent video games. And then I realized They learn a lot from uh, Assassin's Creed because they can be in the middle of Florence, in the middle of Paris. Now it's time to create that connection between the gaming, the metaverse, and the cultural assets and create an experience that is less violent and more educational, but is also more exciting than just flying to Florence when you're 12 years old and going to the Uffizi Gallery. I totally understand. It's going to be boring. A trip to the Vatican Museums and this young woman had the equivalent of a a scavenger hunt for my children to find a specific statues. we had the best three and a half hours. So we gotta gamify the arts and education. And that's also what we're doing now with the University of Florence, creating artificial intelligence solutions so that there is a more of a gamification relationship to education in mathematics. But also we have to be objective. Those video games exist. Kids enjoy driving cars very fast. And maybe shooting a K 47, in which I'm not a fan for, but I'm saying if Mohammed doesn't go to the mountain, the mountain goes to Mohammed and vice versa. So we got to be present in the environment. And that's why avatars, NFTs are going to be assets that are going to provide that educational layer and financial opportunity for both the users and the institutions that are present in that space. All right. I'm going to leave it at that. We're going to wrap up here, Francesca. That's a great place to leave it. But thank you for
3: being with us today. But thank you also for being somebody who keeps everybody focused on that North Star, that this is not about just getting rich, that this is something really, really powerful about who we are as human beings and how we be in the world and how we find in these technologies solutions that allow us to sort of perpetuate that and, and sort of spread that to the world. So Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you to both. Thank you, Sheila, as always, for being here. Always a pleasure, always a joy. And thank you to all of you for joining us. This is the latest edition of Money Reimagined. Come back next week for another one. See you later.
2: You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Francisco Rulli. Our theme song is "Shepherd." And this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Please send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined
1: team, thanks for listening.